Well, thank you for bringing your Bibles with you this morning. On this uh, Father's Day, I've chosen a rather interesting story about a man named Micah from the book of Kings, chapter 17. I'm going to read the first 13 verses there in just a moment. And as you're turning there, if you have your Bibles, we'll project the words. If not, let me just uh, say a word about this horrible tragedy in Orlando this past weekend. Uh, 49 people killed and so many others wounded. Uh, the Bible's clear about a few things. One, one thing the Bible's clear about is that God calls us to weep with those who weep. And it's hard for us to ma- imagine the devastation that these families are feeling, these friends are feeling, people who knew these individuals personally. And all we know for sure, maybe there's a connection point with someone in, our, in the life of our church in a personal way. But for the rest of us, we know this that God calls us to empathize and sympathize with people who suffer. And this is a case in point where it's right for us to pray and ask for God's presence and peace in the lives of people who are so devastated by this horrible event. These people who died, you understand, were people precious to God, people for whom Jesus died, and their lives were taken. And it's a senseless thing. It makes no sense at all. And so it's right for us to pray and to care uh, for those who suffer. Another thing the Bible's clear about is that we're all accountable for what we do. You're accountable. I'm accountable. All of us accountable before God for the decisions we make and the activities we engage. And so for a person to do such a devastating and evil thing, this is a person who now is accountable and that you can be assured of. And then the other thing is the hope that faith in Christ provides. You know, the Bible reminds us that there's going to be a day when there's no more grief, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, and that we will abide with him in a place that is peaceful and where people genuinely live together in peace. And so we look forward to that. This is a blessed hope. And it is a hope that does not disappoint. God's hope is real. So embrace that, friends. You may be in a situation right now that seems unbearable. You may be facing a great challenge. But remember that the hope that God provides is a hope that, that endures. It sustains you. And so hang on to that because God is real and he loves you and he's with you. Well, today, uh, let's uh, consider this interesting story, and I have uh, something then to say to fathers, and I hope it'll be uh, interesting and provocative to all of us. So, Judges chapter 17, I'm going to read the first 13 verses. Our custom is to stand to honor God, so as you're able, thank you for doing that. And now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse... I have that silver with me. I took it. The mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. And when he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now, this man, Micah, had a shrine. He made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Does that ring a bell anywhere? 
A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who had been living within the clan of Judah left that town in search of some other place to stay. And on his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. Verse 13, and Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. May God instruct us, inspire us today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now let me give you some context real quickly. Understanding the context will really help. This is a society during the period of the judges in the life of Israel, the end of the period of the judges. This is a time when society is unraveling. The spiritual and moral culture is coming apart. God installs these judges from time to time who are kind of champions and heroes who lead the people. Uh, Men such as Gideon and Jephthah, women like Deborah, others like Barak and Shamgar. The last of the judges was a man named Samson. You all remember that story. He's a man of great strength. And of course, while God used him in a powerful way because of his strength, Samson was also a person who succumbed to the temptations and the other compromises that were present in the culture at the time. And so, it, so this, this ended the period of the judges. And we find this story of Micah. His name, he's not the prophet Micah, it's just coincidental. We find the story of Micah not, not as an exception to the rule of the day, but more of a typical example of what was going through the minds and hearts of people and their practices in this part of part of history. So Micah is a story that I think we can identify with. And I think we can identify with it because of the portrait of the moral and spiritual confusion that existed in their day and I contend exists in our day. Do you hear that? Moral and spiritual confusion. Would you agree we have a little bit of that? And so we can connect with this story, and I hope that the connection will be meaningful. Now, I want to make this statement because it's really pivotal. It's foundational to everything else I'm going to share today. Now, hear this, hear this statement. Come back, come back to me. Hear this statement. One of the great challenges facing the 21st century church is confronting a spirit of deceit. A spirit of deceit. Now, deceit is the action or practice of deceiving someone or yourself by concealing or misrepresenting the truth. If you are deceived, it means you believe a lie. You're caused to believe something that is untrue. And there is a spirit of deceit that was loose in Micah's day and I contend is loose in our days. You look at this story. Here's a man at the time of the judges who hears his mother putting a curse on the no-good, low-down scoundrel who had stolen her 1,100 shekels of silver. Well, Micah's the one who'd stolen her silver. And she puts a curse on whoever the man was and his family and his business. And so Micah hears this and it freaks him out. And he becomes afraid. Now he has no fear or respect or reverence for God. He has no real respect for himself, apparently, and no reverence for his mother either because he stole her silver. 
But when he hears this curse because of superstition, he gets afraid. And by the way, we have many, many people in our culture today who are making decisions at the crossroads of their own lives based on the motivation of fear. And could I just say again that fear is absolutely the worst foundation point from which to make a major choice in your life. Do not let fear guide you. Micah did not know that the scripture teaches, for example, that he hides us in the cleft of the rock and covers us there with his hand. Micah wasn't aware of the provision of God's grace in his word, which says that a curse without a cause cannot come to rest. And so absent of God's understanding and God's word and God's grace in his life, Micah reacts in fear and confesses his sin. Now the mother's response to Micah saying, oh, I'm the mom, I'm, I'm the one that took your silver. What did she say? What a, what a blessed woman I am. What a good boy I have. He confessed to taking my silver. It's odd, isn't it? The mother had the intention to give the silver to the boy so that he could make an idol for himself. And by the way, this is likely a Jewish family. And under the law of Moses, every Jewish family was re required to put on their doorpost or at the, right at the front door this scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, and thou shalt have no other gods before him. Reminding us that the basic tenet of the Hebrew faith is that there shall be no graven images made of any other god. God will not compete with idols in our lives. Verse 3 of the, our text, she had consecrated all of her 1,100 shekels to the Lord, she said. But in the next verse, she only gives 200 shekels to the boy for his idol. So the son is a thief and the mother is a liar. She now has two images made of idols, graven and molten, to be placed in the boy's home. And then he consecrates his own son to be priest. Now everybody in, in Israel knew that, that Ephraimites do not become priests. Only the, only the Levites could be priests. But he names his own son as a priest of his house so he can perform the rituals at the little shrine that he's placed in his house with all of these idols. Shortly after that, a Levi from Bethlehem, Judah, comes passing through and he says, hey, what tribe are you from? He said, from Levi. And he said, hey, just stay here. I'll pay you, pay you some money and give you room and board and you can just be my priest in my house. And the guy said, well, I got nowhere else to go. So he stays. So follow the story. He's a thief. Superstition brings him to confess his thievery to his mother. She's a liar. They're both idolaters. And now he feels like he covers his religious obligation by installing a priest in his house. He feels like that morally and spiritually he's got his bases covered. Which then gives him permission to make this utterly ridiculous statement in verse 13 when he says, Now I know that the Lord is going to do me good since the Levite has become my priest. Remember, the, 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 the sub-support of this whole message is the issue of deceit. On your outline, I want to say three things about this story. The first is the word deceit. Write that down. D-E-C-E-I-T. Deceit. The truth concealed or misrepresented. He's worshiping false gods in the name of Jehovah, made of stolen silver, which he swiped from his mother, confessed to because of superstition, about which she lied, dedicated to God using a man-made priest, consecrated by his own hands and believes God's blessing will come because he is now a hireling Levite he installs as his personal priest. It's astonishing. It's amazing that he can't hear himself talk and tell this story. 
For now I know the Lord is going to do me good. It's one of the most provocative stories in the whole Bible. It's, it's amazing. Here is a man who is living in crass and blatant deceit. Completely misunderstanding who he is and his relationship with God. Listen, the worst kind of deceit is not when you attempt to deceive others, nor even if you attempt to deceive God. The worst form of, of deceit is when you attempt to deceive yourself. This is when I'm out of touch with my own personal experience with God. That's, that's when I really enter the danger zone. That's where I go into the, road, the red zone. I'm over the line. I'm past the boundary. The meter gets pegged when I no longer have the capacity to discern my level of intimacy in my relationship with God. And this happens all the time in our culture. Let me just submit to you, the application now is for the person who says, now I know the Lord's going to do me good. I've joined my grandmother's church. I've become more civic-minded. I volunteered to paint a house during serve week. I put more money in the offering at church one week than anyone expected of me. I coached my son's Little League team. I, I cried at my grandmother's funeral. I must be a good guy. I must be right with God. But let me put this statement on the screen for you. Christianity is not about fulfilling the requirements of religious duty. No, no. Christianity is about growing intimacy with God and his people. That's it. All the other stuff is an outflow of that intimacy. Here's what I know for sure. There are two groups of people in the room right now because of me raising this issue. The two groups who are still engaged with me are in these two camps, either you're in this group that says, you know, maybe I'm not as close to God as I need to be. Maybe Pastor Greg is right that I'm deceived about that because I do live a relatively good life and I try to do my religious duty. Maybe I was inferring that my relationship and intimacy with God is actually closer than it is. And so you are drawn to God with deceit revealed. The, other, the others of you are in the other camp which is you tend to withdraw from God when deceit is revealed. How dare you? How dare you suggest to me that I'm not close to God? You know, look, I'm a good guy. Don't tell me I don't know God. I do good things. I, you know, I, I perform my duty. You know, I got my ducks all ro lined up. So don't, don't tell me I'm not a good boy, good girl. And so there's resistance to that. Listen, anytime deceit is unveiled, the light of truth hits deceit. One of two reactions occur. Either you have a revival or you have a riot. You have people who, that are drawn to God, or you have people who are, who, are, who are belligerent about the revelation. Many, many, many years ago, after a sermon I preached entitled Excuses, it was a simple little sermon with a simple little outline, reasons why rationalizations people use for not going all in with God, you know, I'm too tired, I'm too old, I don't have enough money, or wait till my kids are raised, blah, blah, blah. I just made a little list, and these are excuses, people just nudging people to get closer to God. There was a woman who walked up to me right after that service that day, and I was standing down on the floor. She walked up to me, and she took her finger and physically poked me in the chest. And this is what she said to me, and I quote. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was quite dramatic. She poked, she's poking me in the chest, looking me right now, and she said, Young man, we don't preach that way in this church. And I don't expect to ever hear that kind of preaching from you again. Do you understand me? Oh. 
I did learn a lesson of life that day, and that is that when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one you hit the hardest yelps the loudest. Explain it to your friend later. <laughs> Listen to me. I can be deceived by the trappings of cultural religion. Or I can be deceived by the secular pseudo-spirituality of a postmodern world. Either way, I need to be free to see myself clearly before God. I need to be able to understand clearly my level of intimacy with God. This is very important. Otherwise, I can be deceived. And all of us are deceived in one degree or another, in one way or another, every one of us, me included. It's easy to get deceived. It's easy to get knocked off course in this most important relationship. Here's a second thought then that I want to offer to you. It's on your outline, and that is the antidote to deceit is grace. Remember grace. Listen to this. At the steps of one of the Catholic basilicas in Latin America, you can find Elderly women crawling on their hands and knees up the steps of that basilica. On their hands and knees. They believe that every step reduces by one year the time spent in purgatory of a departed loved one. Now this is a Roman Catholic doctrine which has emerged over the centuries uh, out of superstitions and traditions. Uh, none of which can be found in the, in the scriptures themselves. There, there are no Protestant denominations that teach of such a place as purgatory. Some middle place after you die you go to you know and people on the earth then somehow perform some duties in order to to get you out of purgatory and on to heaven these women in latin america believe that if they all crawl up the steps it'll help a departed loved one their palms are bruised their hands are torn their knees dripping with blood and they somehow hope to minister some grace to a departed loved one a husband a son a friend and it's frustrating because if you understand grace, you know that this isn't necessary. You want to reach down and say, stand up. Don't you, don't. you don't have to do that. That's not going to help. That's not, that's not grace. You see, grace is the unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God. It is a gift of God. Grace. It's the one thing that differentiates Christianity from all of the other religions in the world. Grace is the is the undeserved, unearned favor of God. It comes in the form of a gift motivated by God's love for us, evidenced by the death of His very own Son on our behalf. And so the way that we are made right with God is by receiving this gift of grace, by receiving it thankfully and by faith. If you're going to heaven, if you plan to go to heaven, there's only one way you can get there, and that's by grace. You're not going to earn your way. You're not going to perform your way to heaven. It's not going to work that way. You can't do it. It's not enough. You'll never make it. If you plan to go to heaven, you will go because you have embraced a free gift that God has offered to you because he knew that we were hopeless and helpless in the estate of sinful rebellion. And so he made a way for us in offering the life of his very own son. This is the good news. This is amazing grace. Saved a wretch like me. Let me put this uh, statement on the screen. We misunderstand grace by constantly focusing on performance for God rather than relationship with God. 
See, Micah had all the trappings of religion. He had an investment of money. He had images of worship. He had a priest. He was, but he was able to hide his eyes from the true state of his soul. It's, it's the woman who hears a sermon on forgiveness, and she's taken offense because another woman in the church has said something to her that offended her, and she's right across the aisle in the worship service from the offender, and she sees this woman freely worshiping God, and she, she resents her all the more, and now she hears the sermon on forgiveness, and it's ringing in her ears. Forgiven, you will be forgiven. Relinquish the right to pass judgment on the other. Set them free. Give them to God. Walk away. Open your heart and offer forgiveness. And she sits there, hears the sermon, but reasons to herself, this isn't unforgiveness. This is righteous indignation. My cause is righteous. My position is right. And deceit and confusion continues. Friends, you have to remember grace. You have to remember grace. Now, here's... Here's the last thought I want to give you, and that is there's a problem, the problem of deceit. You need the word problem for your outline. There's a problem with deceit. And let me tell you what the problem is. The problem is that nobody sins in a vacuum. By that, I mean no one sins without it affecting not only themselves, but everybody around them. No matter how you live your life, it affects and impacts and influences the people around you. If you live a noble life and a godly life and an honorable life, you influence positively people around you. If you live a life that is sinful and rebellious and selfish, then there are consequences and harm done to the people around you. It's a real problem if you're living your life in deceit. We're discovering that the moral patterns of American Youth culture, emergent youth culture, is being reported as the same in the church as it is in secular society. And one of the reasons for that is because you cannot con a kid. You can't fool a kid. Kids are basically saying to us, no one's saying it out loud, but this is the effect. They're basically saying, if you're going to play, then let's all play. They're saying to all of the adults, look, if you're not going to keep your covenants in the most important relationships in your lives, then don't expect us to keep our covenants. If you're not going to have integrity in the promises you make, then we're not going to have any integrity with our promises. If you're going to live like a hypocrite, then, hey, let's all get in the party. We can play along. So what has happened in our culture is the unresolved gap between our confession as spirit-filled Christians and the conflicted internal condition and practices of our own lives is a big chasm, a crevice, into which the postmodern emergent youth culture has fallen. You cannot con a kid. You can't say one thing and expect another. Let me put this statement on the screen for you. When Christians connect the way they relate to God with the way they live their lives, wholeness results. Integrity is the assimilation of faith and practice of what you believe and how you live. It's an integrated life. See, the, the ultimate sin of Micah was to his family, not just to himself and his own corrupt heart, but to his family and the people closest to him. His own deceit informed the faith and lifestyle patterns eventually of his own children. Now, it's Father's Day. Now, fathers, listen to me, please. Listen. Your daughters, for example, do not want to be like their mothers. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but this is absolutely true. Your daughters do not want to be like their mothers. Your daughters 
want to be like the women you admire. And they will know if that kind of woman is your wife or not. They'll know. Because you can't con a kid. If you take inappropriate notice of women who look or talk or dress or act inappropriately, then your daughters will notice that. Your daughters want to be the kind of woman you find interesting and fascinating. Fathers, listen to me carefully. Your sons want to be like the kind of men with which you surround yourself. You may go to church. You may be a good guy. You may, you may, uh, you may show all kinds of positive influences in your life in other ways. But if your best friends are crass or crude and profane and unfaithful, then don't be surprised if your sons don't follow that pattern. Your sons know if your business partners, your associates are men of character and integrity. They know it. They will notice. You said, well, I need to clean up my... It's too late. They've, they've noticed. They got you. You can't con a kid. No man sins in a vacuum. In the next chapter in Judges 18, the Danites, a group of, of marauders, come through and they ransack Micah's house. And they take his stuff. They took his livestock, his idols, his possessions, and his little ones. Judges 18.21, meaning his children, his small children. Even the Levite went with them. The Danites come through to sack the house, and the Levite says, take me with you. <laughs> says, this house, it ain't right here. Something ain't right here. Take me with you. And the Danites said, all right, we'll take you too. They take the Levite. Three verses later, in Judges 18.24, we find Micah has caught up with the guys who have ransacked all of his stuff, taken away his children. And he catches up with them, and this is what it says. When he, when he confronts the Danites, he asks, why have you taken my idols and my priest? Now, pause right there for a minute. Let me ask you this. Can you hear his children in the background? Can you hear them screaming? Can you hear them crying? Here these little babies have been taken away from their home and threatened at the point of their lives. They're scared to death. And they know what's in front of them is slavery or worse. And they are filled with hopelessness, but now they see their daddy on the horizon. Here comes daddy. Daddy's going to, he's going to save us. He's going to rescue us. He's going to help us. Can you hear them screaming? Can you hear them calling out for their dad as he approaches? But what does Micah do? What does he say? He walks up to the Danites and says, why did you take my idols and why did you take my priest? You say, well, is there any application? Yeah, there's a, there's a direct application to North American society right now. We are the generation of the Micahs. We have men, multiplied millions of men in this culture who are just like Micah. This is the generation of Micah. Absentee fathers and abandoned children are the result of a culture of deceit. Priorities are misplaced and lives are ruined. Now, fathers, look, I get that there's... Almost all good fathers in the room, I get this. But you, but you can hear 
You can hear the cry of the children, can't you? In our culture, can't you hear them? And it's not just about us, men. It's about these little ones. It's about our children. And it's about our wives and keeping covenant with her. And it's not just about us. It's about our homes. And it's about our churches. And it's about our community. And it's about each other. One of the most highly stated values in today's emergent youth culture is we want to be authentic. We value authenticity. And so you hear the phrase now used in our culture, uh, get, get real. I just want to be real. You hear it all the time. Just, come, come on, get real. And people who are phony just get discarded all the time because folks aren't buying it. They're not swallowing it anymore. And so here's what I need from you, men. I need you to get real. I need you to persevere with God. I need you to become a man of prayer. I need you to become a man of holiness and godliness. We need each other to be real and true and honest. We need each other to break through this wicked curse of deceit that's on America and on American children and families. Let me tell you about two funerals. First, a prominent man, a CPA, inherited a sizable amount of money and parlayed it into a significant fortune. He was an official member of a local church and attended, to my knowledge, he attended twice. Once for the baptism of his granddaughter and the second when he was wheeled into the front of the church in a coffin. At the funeral home with the four children, three sons and a daughter, all adults coming from all across the United States, as the pastor gathered the immediate family privately around the coffin for a time of prayer, an argument began and quickly escalated into bitter rage over the father's estate. Screaming and spitting at each other across the open casket of their father. The adult children named, nearly came to blows, and, I, and they would have if I and the funeral director hadn't stepped between them. I have to tell you, it was enough to make a young pastor become deeply disillusioned. We finally separated those family members and got them out of the building. I came back in there and stood next to that casket. And before God, I heard him whisper into my ear, failure, failure. What a failure of a man. I mean, is that it? You spend your life stacking a few possessions one upon another, and when you die, your children fight over it before you can be put in the ground? Shortly thereafter, another man died. Pulpwood truck driver. Ignorant. Third grade dropout. His family lived in a tar paper shack in North Georgia. He was killed when his truck turned over on him. He died with nothing. He left a widow and nine children, 19-year-old boy all the way down to a baby in arms. The church gave him a plot in the church cemetery, took up an offering for the funeral. It's all they had. My pastor friend went to the funeral home where they had laid him out in a borrowed suit. 
His wife standing at the head of the casket in a little faded print cotton dress. Can you see her? Hair a little disheveled. Shoes running over at the top. Nine kids. The pastor put the friends out and went back in to pray with the family. And as they prepared to pray, the 19-year-old boy said, Preacher, I've got something I want to say before you pray. He said, My dad, he didn't leave us nothing. He said, You both know that I could poke a hole through the walls of my house with my fist. Maybe you don't know my dad couldn't write. He put an X on every check that he ever wrote. You also know there was never a day when you had a meeting in our church that my dad didn't come early and turn the air conditioner on. And then he'd come early in the pickup truck with all of us in the back until he made sure everyone was gone, and then he would go in and turn everything off. When it was cold, he would come early, turn the heat on. Wait till everyone had left. Turn it off. Maybe you don't know that there was never a day in my life of 19 years when I didn't wake up in our little two-room house and look into the living room and see my dad down on his knees praying for me by name. There was never a night when I would get into bed with my four brothers that I didn't look out into the living room and see my dad on his knees praying for me by name. He said, I went to bed with prayer and I waked up with prayer. My dad, who couldn't read, would hand me the Bible from the time I was in the first grade and I read the Bible to my dad and he knows more of it than you do, preacher. I'll tell you something, pastor. I guess my dad left us penniless, but I know where my daddy is. My friend reported this story to me, and he said, for once in my life, I was able to bury a successful man. Success. Success. I'm really not sure how to finish a sermon like this. Here's my hope. My hope is that God will finish it in our hearts as we pray. So let's do that. Would you pray with me? God, I'm asking you to do in us and for us and through us today all you desire. Lord, I know that there are men here who have drifted from you. They've lost their flame. They've lost their way. There are men, there are husbands, fathers in this room right now who have never really said to their wives and children, from this day forward, I'm going to serve the living God. And Lord, today we confess it's so easy to allow deceit to creep into our lives, into our relationships, into our homes. So easy. Like Micah of old, our gods are stolen, our faith is compromised, our priests led away, our homes ransacked, our children paraded into slavery. Oh God. Oh God. I wonder if there's one father here today who might ask for prayer. Just raise your hand. Say, yeah, I'm a father. Please pray for me. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you, brothers. Let me ask you, are you right with God? Are you ready to die? Are you sure of God's forgiveness and grace? If we roll your casket up to the front of the church sometime this next week, are you ready? Are you ready to meet God? I hope you are.
So, Lord, I pray for all the men, the fathers in the room today. I pray for your grace that it would come to us, shining light in the dark places. Let truth illuminate all the deceit that's found in our lives and our hearts because all of us have it. Put the light on it today, God. Draw us to yourself. Help us to reject the tendency we have to be passive in the most important relationships with you and with our wives and our children. Deliver us from that tendency to be passive. Help us to engage with the people precious to us. Help us to accept the responsibility, the mantle that comes with manhood and with fatherhood. Help us to put that thing on and to wear it and to, and to make it the highest value of our lives. No matter what, I'm going to serve God, honor God, live for God before my family. And I pray, oh God, that you would also give us a firm conviction to lead. You've called us as men to lead. So help us to lead in our marriages and in our parenting and in our work. Help us, God, to model and set an example face in to the unique challenges and the opportunities you give us. Help us to be leaders. And Lord, as we do that, not because we have all of our religious duties fulfilled or somehow we feel like we, we do some good things once in a while to get credit, but rather because we have a heart for you and is a desire to live for you and honor you and influence our families and our communities around us, then would we be able to say, now I know the Lord is going to do me good. His blessing has come upon me and overtaken me in my life and my family. Lord, make these truths real to us today. Enliven our faith. Inspire our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all the people said, would you stand with us now as we sing?